Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It's about 12.45, Friday afternoon, May the 1st, 2020, and we don't want to know how many takes it took me to get the date right, because it's been April for what feels like about four years now, Uh, but it's time for this week's episode of The Homeward Path, which was supposed to be last week's episode of The Homeward Path, but, you know, a whole bunch of stuff happened. Most notably, my wife ended up my wife and my youngest son both ended up sick. Uh, Nolan had strep. Sarah had flu A and B and strep. <laughs> of course, me, the one who's in and out of the house all the time, totally fine. Other two kids who are prone to getting sick all the time, totally fine. We just had to pick on Mama and Nolan this time around. So for those of you who don't know, my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job. This week it's been understandably lighter than usual i had monday and tuesday off to wait on sarah's covid test results to come back to make sure they were negative before i came back to work but somehow some way with all of that going on all that swirling around overhead we try our best to find a way to make some semblance of competitive magic work whether it's fnm heroing or 1king or you know, making the odd trip to play a PTQ that we can't do right now because of COVID. Whatever the case may be, we're trying our best to make it happen on a limited time and financial budget. So if, like me, you have this situation going on, allow me to command you into battle because this week we're talking about 100-card decks. And in particular, the different styles of them when it comes to the macro archetypes of Commander. Because... Frankly, it's something that doesn't get talked about enough, especially on this on, on, on this network, but it is what it is. You know, Commander is a kind of a foreign format to a lot of more competitive Magic players. It's definitely the most popular Magic format. There's no disputing that. It's one of the most fun Magic formats. There's no disputing that. But it's also one of the most misunderstood magic formats. Fun doesn't have to mean unyieldingly casual. So, for starters, I would like to take an opportunity to talk about, before we go into the different macro archetypes and like what each style of deck wants to do, and kind of break them down into their categories, I wanted to talk about what every deck in Commander has, or should have which is to say kind of the, the generic deck building template. And this comes to us courtesy of the command zone who are, who have forgotten more about commander than I will ever learn. But I love the format. I love to talk about it every now and then, especially with other like-minded people. And it's a shame I couldn't have Brian Canada on to do this episode with, but social distancing being what it is and my uh, PC hardware not being able to hold up to doing a digital recording session it, it, we just, we got to live with what we got. So 
first of all, when it comes to your commander deck, obviously, you got to pick one. The first three questions you need to ask when you're building a commander deck. One, who is my commander? Because that dictates what colors I'm playing. Two, what is my strategy? Which is, what does my deck do? And three, how can I turn those two things into winning the game? Those are the first three questions you have to ask in determining what your commander is going to be and the kinds of cards you look for when you either go pilfering through your own collection or through various bulk bins and uh, quarter rare binders and whatever, you know, looking for cards to flesh out your, your 99. And the Command Zone template is a fantastic resource, but by no means is it gospel. By no means is it the be-all, end-all of existence when it comes to dictating how you choose cards, how many cards of each type you choose, all of that. But the first thing I would say is if you're playing less than 36 lands, you better have a very good reason. You better have an unyieldingly low mana curve with a lot of card selection and a lot of ways to just make sure you hit land drops because one of the one of the prime benefits of playing commander one of the things that makes it so special is unless you are playing CEDH which I don't do I don't have the budget to play hyper competitive magic normally I sure don't have the budget to essentially play what is vintage singleton uh well, unless you're playing one of those hyper-optimized monstrosities that just kills on turn four every time it plays. One of the perks for Commander is the idea that decks have variants. The decks aren't necessarily going to function the same. You're not going to be writing the same cards every single game. That's what makes Commander interesting to a lot of players. Again, obviously, obvious caveat being... We're not talking about uh, CDH there. And one of the things that can happen is you can often find yourself mana screwed. More often than you would in typical 60-card magic or even 40-card magic. As is tradition, especially with access to commanders that you have, you know, tucked into your command zone... It's way better to flood than screw. Especially if your commander is a mana sink is, you know, has an activated ability that uses mana, it can deeply benefit you to just have more mana sources in play as opposed to not having more mana sources in play. And on that same token, outside, you know, the the template calls for 36 to 38 lands, somewhere in that range. Obviously, that number can bend up or down depending on what your deck is about. But 36 to 38 is a good place to start. Sort of how 24 is a good place to start in 60-card magic. Or how uh, 17, 18 is a good place to start in limited. Similar approach. Start here and then based on card choices and mana curve requirements you can adjust but generally i would err on the side of more rather than less to that end the next area that you want to look at is mana ramp mana ramp is integral to commander play because a big portion of the the format is designed to be played in groups of four it's how the format was envisioned in the first place 
is to be played in groups of four. Everybody's having a good time. Uh, games can go long, and one of the ways you close a game out when games are going long and uh, you know, you're trying to fend off four people or three other people is to be able to cast more powerful spells. And one of the best ways to cast more powerful spells and start to dominate the game is to do so early. So jumping ahead on mana is beneficial. It also helps because it's it acts as pseudo land drops. Because again, with 99 cards instead of 60, there's more inherent variance. You will miss more land drops over the course of the average game. Yeah, it'll eventually even itself out when you start to flood through the mid-game. But the mid-game in a game of Commander is like turn 7, turn 8, not turn 4, turn 5. So having access to extra mana sources early in the game that both allow you to cast more powerful spells early and allow you to continue casting your on-curve spells as you draw them is a big deal. And as such, a lot of decks want somewhere around 10 mana ramp effects. If you're in green, obviously you have a lot more to choose from. Sometimes you can push that number up alongside your land count and you can just play a higher mana curve as a result. But again, depending on plan and approach and strategy and who your commander is, you can get away with more, get away with less. So now we get now we get into the interesting part because every deck in commander is going to have access to card draw even if you're playing white even if you're playing well i mean you could argue especially if you're playing green right but even if you're playing uh white even if you're playing green even if you're playing mono red you're gonna have access to card draw it's a necessity again there's 99 cards to get through and you've got to find the specific ones you need to get get things rolling, get your deck operating. One of the best ways, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the best ways to do that is to just draw more cards. And when I say card draw, I don't necessarily mean like raw power card draw. Every color is going to do it a little bit differently. Every combination of color is going to do it a little bit differently. And obviously within different decks, it's going to be different. But the idea that every single deck needs access to card draw, needs access to card selection, something to help it find what it's doing is definitely a correct line of thought. You know, number one, number one, make sure your manners are right. Number two, make sure you can get more of it. Number three, draw some cards. You're going to need them. You know, not only are you trying to execute your plan, but you're trying to do so with three opponents, not one. So you're going to have to refuel regularly in order to keep going. The next thing to take into consideration when building a new deck, interaction. And their template breaks it down into five spot removals and five board wipes. But I would argue within this realm, you can have any number of interactive elements. You could argue counter spells are basically preemptive removal. It's removal that doesn't worry about the other text on the card. So if you have access to blue, you're probably going to play some counter spells. I would say unless your deck is going to naturally, like, 
by design of the strategy, be heavy on counterspells. That's where I would say you would categorize the counterspells you play. They fall into your 10-ish interaction slots, right? Does that make sense? I hope it does. So going from interaction, then we have somewhere around 31 to 33 slots that comprise what your deck does. And there's a lot of different archetypes for Commander as far as what to do with those slots. But before we dive into what those slots, you know, what those slots can typically look like, what kinds of decks you can build according to them, I want to talk a little bit about one of the basic deck building tenets that should always be in the back of your mind, whether you're playing Commander or not, and that is to create overlap between the roles your cards are playing. Card draw doesn't have to just be raw card draw. You, If you can make a deck where the cards you're playing to draw cards also synergize with what your deck is doing, that makes your deck better. The amount of overlap is really important. You want some of these card roles to bleed into each other. You know, if you're playing a ramp deck, you're going to have more than 10 ramp spells. So you can, you can borrow quite a bit of your deck plan slots in order to make room for ramp because it's the same thing. You're doing both. It's going to feel like your deck is more functional because what you're doing is something every deck does. You're just more focused about it. Similarly, if you're a counterspell control deck that has access to a little, you know, very little in the way of removal, you probably want extra board wipes as opposed to playing a whole bunch of spot removal. You know, you don't want five spot removals, five board wipes because you're playing a bunch of counter spells as a deck plan anyway. You're going to want more board wipes. You're probably going to want, you know, six to 10 to 12 board wipes because your goal is to keep the battlefield clear. And that bleeds into your deck plan approach you know those slots your interaction slots bleed into what your deck is doing so as much as you can overlap into these areas it's definitely a big deal definitely a good thing and within that realm we're going to start by talking about the aggressive decks of commander they do exist mind you and I'm, lu I'm lumping uh, combo-oriented decks into this slot, which is to say decks that are really quickly trying to combo off. Not decks that play a fair game for several turns, have to set up, and then they use an engine to grind their way to find a combo that eventually kills everybody. That's, that's a different thing that we'll get to later. What I'm talking about here, when I talk about linear combo decks... Any deck that is single-mindedly trying to kill the whole table as quickly as possible, that is seeking to shorten the game, falls under the aggressive umbrella for Commander. The first one I want to talk about is one of the most unique strategies to Commander, and that's Voltron. It plays like all those bad equipment decks we've ever always tried to build. You know, if you've ever played the, the SRAM, it's like the SRAM Aras deck in, in Pioneer. You want to just strap your thing up, make it huge, and kill everybody. 
one of the central tenets of Commander and one of the things that keeps infinite life combos in check is the mechanic of Commander damage. If somebody takes 21 or more damage from a single Commander, they die, and it doesn't matter what their life total is. Having access to that, having access to a mechanic that allows you to push through massive amounts of damage is a big deal. So Voltron decks, uh, Voltron decks tend to be designed around the axis of a cheap commander with relevant combat abilities. But with relevant combat abilities comes the general approach overall of how the deck functions, which is the idea of strapping a whole bunch of stuff to it and smashing it into somebody's face. And one of the ways you get under a lot of decks is to do exactly that. You want to get under them by way of, you know, one of the first Voltron decks ever built was Akiri, Line Slinger, and Bruce Tarl Boris Herder. Akiri being a two-drop 03 that comes with its own cranial plating in a format built around mana rocks. You, you know, one of the central tenets of ramping mana is doing so with cheap artifact acceleration. And doing that in that deck also helped pay off the Voltron strategy. And then equipment also did the same. So for each equipment I was playing, I was getting a bigger buff to a carry, and then the equipment would stack on additional effects. And the number of times we were routinely on turn five or six, just lethal commander damage somebody was not nothing. It was a very single-minded strategy, but even without something like that, a relevant combat ability of something like Rafik of the Many, when it attacks alone, we get plus one, plus one because of Exalted, and we get double strike because of Rafik's own ability. So, if Rafik has 11 power and trample and attacks, you're threatening lethal every time you send him in there. That's a big deal. Uh, Nick, at one point, even had started working on a version of Progenitus. You know, five color, ten mana Progenitus. As a pseudo Voltron deck where you wanted to, to ramp aggressively over the first few turns to get your Progenitus out. But by the time it hit the table, you wanted to have some sort of haste enabler active so that it would be able to attack right away. And then you wanted to have Rafik of the Mini on the battlefield so that when Progenitus attacked, they couldn't block it because it has protection from everything, which means it can't be blocked. It also can't be targeted, damaged, or enchanted. So Rafik just swings in. Exalted gives it plus one, plus one. Rafik gives it double strike, and you attack for 22, and they're dead. Game is over. So, Voltron decks are kind of a, kind of, not necessarily like a necessary evil, we'll get to those in a minute, but more a deck that is interested in playing a, a, a game that forces people to do something. It's the classic like mono red deck of Commander. It's, your, it's one of the easiest places to start, or some of the easiest decks to play, they're cheap to build, the cores move around. 
So they're a good place to start. If you've never played Commander before and you want to start somewhere easy, start somewhere simple, Volt, you can do a whole lot worse than Voltron. The next aggressive leaning deck is a Swarm deck, uh, Tokens. And as I mentioned before, there will be some bleeding into different archetypes. Even within the same commander, there will be multiple ways to build the same thing. But at their core, swarm decks want to dominate the battlefield by going extremely wide. Just get a ton of bodies on the table. Make them all bigger and send them in a whole bunch of different directions. You'll see card effects like Helm of the Host on stuff like Siege Game Commander. Uh, blink effects on token generators. Just as many ways as possible to make just a lot of stuff. Get really big and wide on the table. Now once you get wide, then you start worrying about trying to go tall. You make them all bigger. And, you know, fun fact, if I'm sending... 15 three threes at you, that's uh, that's lethal. 15 three threes is a lot. And if I can do that to everybody, that's even more. A really good example of this approach, although it bleeds into our next one, is uh, Sarah's Miri Weatherlight Duelist Cat Tribal Deck. One of the central tenets of that one is it plays much more like a swarm deck. You just want to get a whole bunch of bodies on the table. And then you crusade them up with cards like Raksha, Golden Cub, uh, what is it, Brass Herald, King of the Pride, uh, Pride Sovereign, you know, and then cards like White Sun Zenith make a bunch of bodies. Cards like Nakata War Pride make a ton of bodies. Miri attacking makes it to where defending players are only allowed to attack with one only allowed to block with one creature so you're just chipping in for massive damage going down this path leads to a deck that is typically very vulnerable to board wipes but in turn can recover from them fairly well you know you have a lot of different ways to get on the table rather than having to spend a ton of cards to do it you're looking at kind of army in a can effects. You're looking to just go as wide as possible, crusade them up. It's like the, the white aggro decks in standard if they were allowed a lot more time to operate before the board wipes started flying. The next one, bleeding into this one, is tribal aggro, where you take the synergy of going wide and then you make it linear. You play everything with a tribe. And when I say you play everything with a tribe, I don't necessarily just mean everything with the same creature type. It's important to note that. There are tribal decks that don't care about creature types. There are mechanic tribal decks. A really good example is something like Battalion Tribal, where you want to go wide because you want to get a bunch of different battalion triggers. Or energy tribal, where you want to play as many of the energy cards as you can to get as much energy as possible to maximize your ability to use that resource. Or uh, artifact creature tribal. You know, artifact tribal decks are really popular in Commander. You don't have to play necessarily like 
all artifact cards. You're just balancing the worst, you know, what the worst card in your deck does versus how much power it gives you when you get a critical mass of them. Tribal decks are fun. They're one of the cornerstones of Commander. They're one of the pillars. They're one of the most popular places to go when you start looking at it. Like, Dragon Tribal is very aggressive, even though all the mana costs are really high. You're still seeking to just kill everybody. You know, Atarka World Render just double strikes. Or no, Dragon Lord Atarka, so excuse me. Double strike. Or maybe it is Atarka World Render. I'm not just dead sure. I can't remember which one. Atarka, anyway. Double strikes. Your dragons get double strike. The Dragon Queen, I think, I, I can't remember the, the card's name, that makes a 6-6 six, six every time a dragon you control attacks. That gets really wide really fast. So as long as you can get ahead on mana early, you can get a lot of bodies on the table, you get paid off in massive ways for playing a bunch of dragons. Uh, goblins, elves, cards like Sylvan Messenger or Goblin Ringleader are no joke. Getting to add to the total of card effects for stuff like Wellwisher or uh, Goblin War Strike or Brightstone Ritual or Heritage Druid, while at the same time adding upwards of four cards to your hand to continue doing what you're doing is rather unreasonably silly. So, I mean, you never considered it. Tribal decks are fun too. They're a little bit more expensive than Voltron decks. A little bit more expensive than your traditional Swarm decks in the sense that the investment you make is only good for that deck, right? You know, uh, Brightstone Ritual is very rarely good in non-Goblin Tribal decks. You can build a lot of different looks at Goblin Tribal, but it's still Goblin Tribal at the end of the day. It's the same deck. There's no, you know, you can build different Goblin Tribal decks. You could do Krinko. If everybody hates Krinko off the table, you could do what Brian Canada did and build uh, Zada Hedron Grinder, where you can target your Zada with multiple spells in order to pump the whole team or, you know, empower the whole team, draw a bunch of cards, whatever. Uh, Brian, in particular, Brightstone Ritual is really good when you make a bunch of Goblin tokens because you get, you know, Brian made 18 mana with a Brightstone Ritual and then proceeded to cast, you know, everybody gets haste. Everybody gets haste, draw a card, or this target creature gets haste, draw a card, Zada copied it for everybody. So we just draw 19 cards. Play the Reliquary Tower we were looking for. Uh, cast Screaming Fury, plus, five, uh, plus four, plus O oh, and Trample. Tamer Battle Rage, Double Strike and Trample, send everybody. Somebody, pretty much the whole table's dead in that situation. Ain't no getting around it. So, tribal decks are fun. Even when they're not necessarily what you would typically associate with tribal. Now, going from tribal to our next category, now we're going to start bleeding into the, the next overarching, the big, the big macro archetype, right? Because the next one for aggressive decks is your, your storm decks. 
whether they're actually storm decks or whether they're looking to utilize something like Aetherflux Reservoir, it's the same basic principle. You want to cast as many spells as possible and kill everybody with some sort of unyieldingly powerful effect. Your goal is to kill everybody and you're doing it by casting a flurry of spells all at once, you're probably a storm deck. Especially if your goal in doing so is to do it, you know, build up for two or three turns and then just start doing, start doing stuff until you either get stopped or fizzle. And the reason I say it bleeds into our next category is because that's also what you would associate with the spell slinger archetype. Spellslinger Archetype is the first one within the mid-range macro section. I don't, I don't, to, to preface before we move on, I don't feel like Storm decks really need a lot of an introduction here. They're good, they're powerful, and they do a lot of good work. They're, they're at their best when opponents don't respect them or are worried about something else. That's why they're so good in Commander. When your opponent is worried about something else, it makes it a whole lot easier for you to do your job. If they're not trying to rip your hand apart the way they do in Modern, which you still sometimes combo off through, you're probably going to be okay. So at the end of the day, while I like Storm decks. I'm probably not going to be building one in the in the near future because they're, they're again, I, it feels like as we go through this, the decks get a little bit more expensive, right? There's just so much. But moving into the mid range, it actually comes down a peg because while a linear storm deck is what it is, it's frustrating. You you're you're buying all the way in. A Spellslinger deck is almost like half a Storm deck, right? Where, uh, where mid-range decks, where, where the aggressive decks, rather, want to kill the table, want to kill everybody as quickly as possible, mid-range decks want to leverage some sort of a board advantage. And when you're leveraging a board advantage, that's inevitably going to lead to the game being a little bit slower. You can't take advantage of something like that necessarily on the drop of a hat. An engine needs to be put together. It needs to be. A, it needs needs a little bit of help to fall into place. You need some time. You need you need turns to 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 push with it. You need. It takes work. Similar to mid-range decks in standard and modern, where you've got to use some interactive elements, you're much more interested in those interactive elements. Where the, the more aggressive decks might be able to trim some on their interaction, they just play you know, a couple of spot removals, a board wipe or two, and then that gives them more room for their deck plan. You know, makes room in the deck for more equipments for the... the um, 
makes more room in the deck for the equipments and the the creatures to wear them it's a little bit harder to get away with doing that in mid-range or you kind of have to adhere to the template a little bit more your goal is to make everybody play fair and dominate a fair board state to, until you can find a way to win the game. And Spellslinger is kind of the, the poster child for that, even though it feels kind of like a worse storm deck. In reality, that's basically what it is, but even a worse storm deck is still a ton of fun to play. A Spellslinger deck is built around a card type. I, you could argue the artifact tribal deck I was talking about earlier falls into this category. And as I said, there's a lot of bleeding between archetypes, just as there is in regular constructed. But at the end of the day, when you move into the Spellslinger territory, instead of looking to utilize this, this mechanical advantage, this leverage that you're trying to use to just kill the whole table as fast as possible. Instead of doing it in terms of a turn advantage, you want to you want to get you know ramp up the card power level of what you're doing. When you're playing a spellslinger deck, you're doing it to generate lots of card advantage. You want to get physical tangible rewards for your efforts. You know whether it's Artifact-centric decks that are playing cards like, I think it's Vidalcan Engineer, I can't, I can't remember the name of the card, was, uh, whenever you cast an artifact spell, draw a card. Or Joira Weatherlight Captain, whenever you cast a historic spell, draw a card. That is a quintessential spell slinger commander, even though you're not doing it with instants and sorceries. It's most typically associated with instants and sorceries, but... The idea of building, chalking your deck full of ways to snowball advantages is the idea of Spellslinger. The one that I've got built in this vein right now is Niv-Mizzet Parin. Whenever you cast, when anybody casts an instant or sorcery, I draw a card. When I draw a card, I deal damage. So by necessity, we're going to play a little bit of extra card draw. Like a card like Brainstorm is silly with a Niv-Mizzet on the battlefield, right? Cast it, draw a card, draw three, or cast it, draw a card, deal one damage, draw three, put two back on top, deal three damage, cast Thought Scour, draw one, deal one, mill two, draw one, deal one. <laughs> you can really start to stack up a bunch of triggers, especially when you throw in a card like Young Pyromancer, Sahili Sublime Artificer, uh, Docent of Perfection. You just start to build this you know, in addition to getting the direct damage payoffs from cards like niv or Firebrand Archer or Electrostatic Field, we also start to build a swarm. We start to build a battlefield presence. We start to get put into a position where we can start attacking people for the win as long as the battlefield remains fairly safe. Fairly fair, for lack of a better way of putting it. Moving from Spellslinger to the next category, we kind of go the opposite end of the spectrum. One of the other easiest ways to dominate the battlefield, and this is one that's really familiar to you uh, standard players, to you modern players, to you pauper players, is the idea that if my stuff is bigger than yours, just all the time, my stuff's bigger than yours, 
I get card advantage by you uh, having to block a lot. Eventually, I overwhelm you with the sheer size of my threats. You are forced to invest multiple cards to remove them. And that's how I get my card advantage. That is the Stompy deck, the classic mid-range deck. You, you leverage a combination of sheer mana, uh, mana efficient threats with uh, powerful interactive elements and sometimes a way to kind of make things less fair, right? Uh, Armageddon effects come to mind. When you put a bunch of big stupid animals on the table and then destroy all the lands, that makes it real hard for your opponents to do anything about it other than chop block until they die. So classic mid-range, right? Classic like old school, big, dumb, green mid-range. That's what this is about. Moving from there, you move into the space that a lot of players really like to live in. And that is the value mid-range portion of the calendar, of the, of the, the ballot. When you start talking about value-oriented mid-range decks, uh, a lot of standard players get real excited. Because value-oriented mid-range decks are inherently a lot of fun to pilot because it feels like you're assembling a puzzle. You're trying to eke the maximum amount of juice out of every single card. Uh, you're trying to make your trades advantageous. And especially in Commander, these decks tend to take the form of graveyard-centric decks. Uh, Marin of Clan Neltoth, Carador Ghost Chieftain, Chainer Nightmares, Nightmare Adept, I think is the name. The one that I have. Uh, constantly gaining little bits of incremental value out of your graveyard until you can eventually assemble what feels like a game-winning combination when in reality if you are at a position where you can execute a game-winning combo your deck has functioned exactly the way it was supposed to the game has probably gone on for a few more turns than it should have the board is fairly clear you know the the board state may be kind of muddled but it's not going to be so muddled that it's difficult to track. Game has gone on for a while, and then you just slam a haymaker on the table. Maybe it's an overrun effect. Maybe it's Crater Hoof Behemoth. Crater Hoof doesn't work outside of Swarm Aggro if you don't have a board presence, if you haven't built up a situation where that's lethal. If you don't have any creatures, Crater Hoof is not lethal. And then the last in the, in the area of mid-range decks, bleeding together a little bit of value and spell slinger is the idea of a mechanic-focused deck. We talked a little bit about this when we were talking about like Battalion Tribal or something like that. But for example, a deck that really wants to leverage Delirium effects or a deck that really wants to leverage uh, Threshold to get card power up. A deck that really wants to leverage Energy in a, in a non-unfair way where you're using Aetherworks Marvel to like just cheat out some big stuff but it's not quite so linear or you're using oh what's a good current example you know, a mutate deck is a really good example it's difficult to just murder the whole table with mutate but 
it gets pretty easy not to not to kill the whole table with mutate, but to slowly work your way through one player at a time as you accrue value. A really good example of this approach is what I'm doing in uh, in Feather the Redeem. There's not really a lot of ways to build Feather, right? Feather is going to Feather. For those of you who don't know, Feather is heroic as a, as a deck thing. Targeting my own creatures with spells. Zodahedron Grinder is another good example. Brian just kind of pushed it to its limit and made it as linear as possible, and I appreciated that because it gave me another good example to use. But in the case of Zada, or not Zada, Feather, in the case of Feather, you're looking to gain value by getting the cards back over and over. Yes, sometimes you can assemble the Voltron kill, right? You get the Feather on the table, you just go pump spell, pump spell, pump spell, team or battle rage, attack somebody for lethal in the air, you know, attack somebody for 22 in the air, get all my stuff back and have the, the juice to do it again. But that's normally the end result of many, many turns of interactive magic, more so than it is like plan A with Feather. Similar things can be said about Shuyun the Silent Tempest, which is, you know, prowess mechanic focus, where you're trying to kind of mix and match Spell Slinger and classic mid-range where you want to make all your stuff big by virtue of casting a bunch of spells and then leverage that into eventual snowballing wins. You can build both of those decks more linear, but the way that I've ever played them, they're much more kind of mechanic-focused mid-range decks. They want to dominate the battlefield and eventually turn the game on its head. And last but not least in the mid-range category is a deck that definitely, definitively is commander only. You are not doing this anywhere else. It's chaos. Now, let me, let me start by saying I will never build a chaos deck because I am horrible at playing something that actively has literal no idea how the game is going to end. I, I, I'm not comfortable with the idea of playing a deck that I can't tell how I'm going to win the game. The upside to chaos and what makes it fall into mid-range rather than some other category like a prison or a lock or something like that is chaos decks thrive when the battlefield is thrown into upheaval regularly. Cards like Warp World, Chaos Warp, uh... What's another good example? Uh, drawing a blank here. What's a possibility storm? Uh, mass polymorph, you know, where the goal of your deck is much less to do much of anything. Like you're not really doing anything. You're just making sure that nobody knows what in the world's gonna happen when they try to do something. And that's a unique way to dominate the battlefield. If nobody knows what they're doing, it's difficult to execute a meaningful strategy, at which point a lot of these other decks start to fold because they don't get to do what they want. It's different than a prison or a lock deck, which just actively seeks to stop everybody from doing anything. Stuff is happening, we're just not sure what it is until it does. 
that's the the distinction I would give. That's why I would put chaos into the mid-range family. The next one I would have on the list, as we slide into the control space, where aggressive decks want to kill everybody as quickly as possible, and where mid-range decks want to dominate the board in a meaningful way for a few turns before they start trying to assemble a way to win, or leverage and snowball their advantages until it starts to slowly take out one player after another. Control decks want to want, want to make sure nobody's having too much fun. Control decks are the necessary evil to a point of commander. They're the kind of deck nobody likes playing against, but when somebody brings an inappropriately powerful deck to the table, everybody's glad there's a control deck there. Uh, Jared my friend Jared Warren has a really good look at uh, Talran Sky Summoner kind of on that wavelength. Jared's Talran deck is counterspell control. And his, his goal in the way that deck is built is to serve as the fun police. He doesn't want to keep everybody from doing anything. He just wants to make sure nobody does anything too terrifying. He wants to make sure nobody does anything uh, out of hand that's going to be difficult for the rest of the table to match. And that's the, where therein lies the fun. Therein lies the intrigue, right? Uh, control decks are what they are. It's much more difficult to play a standard style control deck or even a modern style control deck in commander because you're trying to control three decks at once you're trying to control three opponents that is much more difficult to do as such the decks tend to focus on trying to take away one aspect of the game as opposed to trying to just make sure nobody does anything the first one being removal focused control decks Removal focused control decks are what they are. They're, they kill creatures and they're real good at it. When you can kill creatures, you can have a you can have a pretty sizable advantage against a good portion of the commander format. Because a lot of these decks don't kill you without attacking you. So if you can kill creatures, you can keep yourself and perhaps one or two allies alive long enough to start trying to find a way to win the game, whether it's clearing the board enough times, whether it's uh, spot removaling everything that can block your one big flyer and then protecting it. Whatever the case may be, it's a control deck. I mean, I, I, I shouldn't have to explain a lot about that one. Those of you who play a lot of uh, Legacy or Vintage know about the next one. Taxes. Stacks. Decks that seek to slow the game down, seek to, you know, police the fun by way of minimizing the amount of mana you can use. Those are important. They're not fun, but they're important. Because they can keep a deck that is at an inappropriate power level from being too strong. That's always a good idea. It's always a good idea. So, 
another a good example of uh, a deck that falls into kind of the taxes and stacks macro archetype is Numont the Devastator. Numont being notable for blowing up lands every time it hits somebody. You can every time Numont hits somebody, you can pay mana and blow up a couple of lands. That's a mana denial strategy that falls under the category of something like stacks or taxes. Especially in conjunction with several tax or, you know, a smokestack. Uh, what is it? I can't remember the blue one. When a land is tapped for mana, it bounces to its owner's hand. Uh, Vorniclex is another really good example of one that kind of operates a little bit on multiple angles, but is by and large a deck that keeps aggressive mana ramp decks in check while also being one itself. Uh, they're important. They're, you know, they're not glamorous. They're definitely decks that people hate playing against. Grand Arbiter Augustine the Fourth. Uh, there's more. Uh, Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, as kind of this aggressive white aggro taxes deck. Decks that want that seek to minimize the amount of advantage other decks can gain on them in a short amount of time. They fall under this umbrella, even if they're like thalia decks more aggressively slanted they're still very much in the realm of being control decks and then the last one i would factor into the control deck archetype is where we start getting weird and that is the prison or lock deck these decks are the least fun to play against they're Without a doubt, one of the most annoying, one of the most aggravating things to deal with in Commander. These are decks, as I mentioned earlier, that seek to keep you from playing Magic, period. These are decks that will play, you know, Narset and Wheels. These are decks that will play uh, just mean 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 things decks whose sole desire i think it feels like a lot of the time their sole desire in the game is to make sure nobody has any fun not even they are. the the slogan for prison on uh, inkgaming.com on one of their one of their playmats is fun is a zero sum game so to a prison deck if one person is having fun nobody else can so they seek to be the one person having any fun. Uh, these are decks that play effects like Blood Moon. They play effects like uh, Dovescape and Night of Souls Betrayal together or uh, Dovescape and Virulent Plague together so that non-creature spells just don't happen and you get nothing for them in a format defined by Mana Rocks and Cheap Card Draw and splashy powerful instants and sorceries frequently having though the one-two punch of dovescape and virulent plague does a number on it all those birds die uh, having just that style of play right the the idea that your goal is to make sure eventually nothing is happening and prison locks can find their way into a lot of decks 
A really good example is in various forms of control decks, you will see what they call the pickles lock. And if you've never seen it, it's one of the most hilariously named car named combos ever. Uh, it's one that used to be legal in standard and time spiral Ravnica standardness. Aging myself a little bit because I played it in standard because it was good. But the one-two punch of Vesuvian Shapeshifter and Brian Elemental. And Brian Elemental being obviously where they got the name Pickles. Uh, Brian Elemental says whenever it's turned face up, opponent skips their next untap step. If you never untap your lands, you can't cast your spells. If you never untap your, your permanents, never untap, you never cast your spells. So that locks you out of mana forever. Unless you can do it with something else, which is difficult because you don't have any mana. So being, a, you know, uh, the pickles lock, the reason it's a lock is because of Vesuvian Shapeshifter uh, being a clone. When it enters the battlefield or is turned face up, it becomes a copy of target creature and you can uh, turn it face down at the beginning of each upkeep. And then you, its morph cost becomes one and a blue. So when it's turned face up, it becomes a brine elemental. And then the brine elemental trigger happens because it was turned face up and locks the untap step again. I won many uncomfortable games of control mirrors with that particular interaction. There are some versions of prison decks that want to do that very quickly. And it is a slow, agonizing kill. Eight swings per player is a long time. And that's assuming there's no blockers and you know, whatever. But And while I don't personally like them, I do understand that there's a place for prison decks in Commander. They help pull people away from uh, pigeonholing too much of their removal specifically for creatures. Having access to removal effects for non-creature permanents is important too. Prison decks necessitate it. You can't, you can't just kill creatures and survive. Because somebody will, you know, blood moon you, somebody will whatever. They'll blood moon you, they'll omen machine plus uh or no they'll they'll uh Maryland of the Morn Song and Ashiok Dream Render you or uh you know whatever the case may be you know lock you out from searching a library and then make that the only way you go get the only way you get cards uh they'll Teferi and Omen machine you so that you can't cast anything all you can do is play lands. Whatever, right? That's the idea behind prison. Eventually it gets to a point where nothing's happening anymore. And the only person who wins is the person who has something on the table. And then the last category of decks I want to talk about, I also feel I need to talk about what it is that makes them possible, which are, I call them the politics decks. 
one of the interesting features, it's, it's not a bug, it's a feature of Commander, is the idea that you are playing against more than one opponent, which means sometimes you got to ask for help. Sometimes if you want to survive, it's out of your hands. You don't have the answer. You don't have the way to survive. You don't have a way to make sure you get one more turn. Maybe somebody else does. And politics play an interesting and rather large role in commander gameplay. Because by their very definition, your goal with playing politically is to gain the favor of the table. You want to be the one people pick on the least. In doing so, you gain the advantage of potentially only having to deal with one opponent for a couple of turns while the rest of them are dealing with multiples. Right? Maybe you do somebody a favor and you you earn that player's you you earn a reprieve from that player's efforts for a few turns. That's a good thing. You've successfully played political magic. Another good example is maybe there's one player who brought a deck that is well beyond the power level of what should be there. And you realize it, you know, on the first or second turn of the game. Well, now you've all got to work together to make sure they don't win the game very quickly so that the rest of you get to have a game. Politics. Magic. Uh, and there are decks that fall into this category. Decks that are only viable because of the fact that you're playing with multiple players and because of what they do. The first category, it's another one that's obscenely unique to Commander. Group Hug. Group Hug group hug decks are exactly what they sound like. You want to help everybody. Uh, Kanaios and Tiro of Miletus are a really good example. K and T want everybody to make more land drops and draw more cards. They want everybody to play their spells faster. But in the end, the person who ends up gaining the most value out of Kanaios and Tiro is the controller. And that's the thing about group hug decks. You know, K&T, Feldegriff, those decks want everybody to do something. You want to be able to give things out to people. But at the end of the day, you're the one who gets the most advantage, whether it's tangible like Kanaios and Tiro is, where every opponent who puts a land into play with that effect lets you draw another card. Or whether it's something like Feldegriff where you're gaining political favor. You're being left alone. You're being allowed to steadily amass a board. Uh, hand in hand with a, with a group hug deck is a pillow fort deck. The decks are often intertwined. They're often very similar. Usually borrowing elements from one another. But a pillow fort deck is a deck that just makes itself an unappealing target. Your deck plan is to make yourself difficult to attack. It's not to say impossible. You're not trying to lock anybody out. You're not doing anything to anybody's stuff. 
you'll play a lot of propaganda effects. You'll play ghostly prison. You'll play propaganda itself. You'll play collective restraint. You'll play Noren's annex. You'll play hissing miasma, revenge of the ravens. So that attacking you in a way that is meaningful becomes difficult. You, you, wanna, you want layers upon layers of protection. Sphere of resistance, I think is the name of the card. Sphere of safety, that's what it is. Uh, opponents can only attack you if they pay X for each creature where X is the number of enchantments you control. I don't know why I said sphere of resistance. That's like a vintage staple that I've never actually seen in person. But pillow fort decks are viable strategies for commander because if you're playing one person, you never have the idea, you never have a chance to set up enough of these to matter. You're just dead before it matters. They can they can juice up one creature, they can uh they can blow they can use the interactive elements they have all on your stuff, and you just kind of sit there and flounder until you die. But when you're playing a three-person game, you can use a little bit of political intrigue, be like, hey, I've got this ghostly prison. You can do a lot more damage to that person if uh if you attack them. You're only going to be able to get me with like two of those. You can send everybody over there. And that gives you time, time to dig, time to develop, time to adjust, time to adapt. And then somebody casts Tempest of, Tempest of Light or Tranquility and screams at you, Trading against now! And tells you you weren't ready. Uh, if anybody appreciates that reference, let me know. Because that's one of my favorite online, it's one of my favorite shows. But... You know, pillow fort decks are viable strategies. Within the within the realm of group hug, you also, you know, there are some people who like to give out hugs. There are other people who like to give out pain. Uh, group pain decks are also facilitated within the realm of commander, where all of us are going to get hurt until some until everybody else is dead. A really good example of this is Heartless Hit at Sugu. Hit at Sugu makes the game really, really, really fast. Like, cutting everybody's life total in half over and over and over will end the game in a flash. But when you give your hit at Sugu lifelink, suddenly you're the only one doing much. You know, you're tapping hit at Sugu and you're dealing everybody else 10, and then you gain 30. And also don't take any damage because of the lifelink to the damage to you. Like, that's not nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, Combal Council of Allocations, another good example of group pain. Like, no, 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 no. Don't get too crazy over there. Don't do all that stuff or you're going to die. Wheel decks are another good example of group pain. Nekusar the Mind Razor, uh, Kaidel and Vile Smasher, where you take the wheel deck, the Nekusar wheel deck, and splash green so that you have access to more aggressive mana ramp. Uh, God, another good example I'm trying to think. The root pain decks. Um, Rakdos, Lord of Riot. Rakdos, Lord of Riot, or no, no, even better, Rakdos, the Defiler, the original. Rakdos from Dissension. 
who says, whenever he attacks, I sacrifice half my non-demon permanence. But when he hits you, you also sacrifice half your non-demon permanence. So everybody gets in on this action. Maybe we'll send them all over the table with multiple combat phases. Maybe we have the aggravated assault and we just float a ton of mana to trigger it three or four times. That's that's meaningful. That's powerful. That's only working because you're playing in a big game. If you sacrifice half your stuff, they sacrifice half their stuff in regular one-on-one, you're still kind of breaking even and the game goes on for a while, but it doesn't really it's not really a novel approach to the game. It's not a deck you can build as a as a viable like signifying option. By contrast, when you do it in uh, Commander with stuff like Grave Pact in play, for example. Okay, I sacrifice half my stuff. Now everybody else sacrifice three creatures. Okay, and then Rakdos hits you. Now sacrifice half your stuff. Now that's that's where things can get murky. That's where things get interesting. And then the last category I have under the idea of the political decks. I call them house rule decks. And they're they're less like an established archetype and more something I've encountered in my time playing Magic. It's a good excuse for me to tell some stories, right? Uh, house rule decks are a ton of fun. They're decks where either a central strategy, a card interaction, something that typically is is very defined and set in stone takes on a different meaning because of how the group decides to play it. Like it only works if the group allows it to work, right? This is not the kind of deck you bring to a group you've never played with before. But house rule decks can lead to some of the most unbelievably fun moments you ever have playing Magic. Really good example. Uh, Brett wanted to build Ruhan of the Fomori. Those of you who don't know, Ruhan selects its attack target at random. Well, for Brett, Ruhan had a rule. Whoever had the highest life total took the hit. Was the house rule. Technically not at random. And technically not tournament legal, but it's commander. We're playing for fun. So Ruhan says, yeah, no, uh, the dude over there that just jumped up to 150 life by blasphemous acting the board. I'm going to send my indestructible double striking self over there. You know. Or, uh, another good, a better example is the card Endless Whispers. Endless Whispers 
excuse me, has led to some of the most fun games of Magic I've ever played, and they happen like within the first year or two that I started playing. To the point that eventually I'm going to put this interaction in one of my decks. I haven't decided which one yet. But Endless Whispers is a, an enchantment that reads, when a non-token creature dies, at the beginning of the end step, return it to the battlefield under your opponent's control. Well, we had a house rule around Endless Whispers. My friend Matthew had a deck he called Carnage. And it lived up to its billing. Its sole purpose in existence is to kill stuff. We're talking Goblin Sharpshooter gets Death Touch, mow down the whole battlefield. Kill stuff. Well, our house rules surrounding Endless Whispers and what made that deck so interesting If you kill it, you are the one that got it. If you sacrifice it willingly, like it has an ability that allows you to sacrifice it, you give it to another player. If a card effect forces you to sacrifice it, you give it to the controller of that effect. That was the house rule surrounding Endless Whispers. Well, Matt made things really interesting when he would get Hirobi Death's Whale onto the battlefield. Hirobi says when a creature becomes the target of a spell or ability, destroy that creature. Just kill it. Tap this pinger to target your thing, it's dead. Give me. Target creature gains intimidate until end of turn. Oh, sorry, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not gaining intimidate, it's dying. <laughs> uh, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. Oops, never mind, it's dead. That's mine now. You know, uh, Brett and I, uh, I have vivid memories of sending one Sakura Tribe Elder back and forth for so long that the two of us pulled every single basic land out of our deck because Endless Whispers triggers at the end phase. Not your end phase, every end phase. So... I sacrificed a Kura Tribe Elder during Steven's turn, and at the end phase it goes to Brett. Well then Brett does a bunch of stuff and then sacrifices the Elder before the end of his turn, and then he sends it back to me. Well I do stuff and then I sacrifice the Elder and I send it back to him, and then during Matt's turn he sends it back to me, and then during Steven's turn I send it back to him, well then during Justin's turn it comes back to me, and then during Brett's turn it goes back to him, so on and so forth. But, you know, passing this, this stupid little snake back and forth, we got all our basic lands out of our deck. And we were only able to do that because of the way Endless Whispers worked. Otherwise, 
we would have had to have figured out, you know, I could have given it to, to whoever I wanted to, right? But then it gets really murky when it, you know, Endless Whispers is in play and you don't have this house rule in effect and then players can really start to push the political alliances. Now, you can have this one, but you get this bad, you get this negative one. You know, playing a card like uh, Sky Swallower is really funny with an Endless Whispers in play. Like, stifle its trigger when you play it and then uh, sacrifice it with Endless Whispers in play and at the end of my turn it goes to someone else who then has to give all their permanents to somebody. Like, there's a lot of weird ways to build around something like that, but I really enjoyed our house rule for it. The idea that we were playing decks, like, you know, Matt played a deck whose sole purpose was to just make a bunch of cool stuff happen, right? That's, that's completely foreign to a lot of competitive players. And I've talked at length before. I did an entire episode on the value of nonsense. I've done an episode about why I think Commander is a format more players need to look at. But it's been a long time since I said anything about it, so I'm going to say it again. Commander is my favorite way to experience magic with other people. If I want to play Magic to experience the game, my most favorite way to do that is either playing Pauper or Standard. If I'm playing Magic to improve at Magic, my favorite way to do that is to play Limited or Standard. But if I'm playing Magic to have a good time, I'm playing Commander. Because at the end of the day, that's... You know, magic is a game, and it's important to remember that from time to time. It's supposed, you know, we got into this game because it was something we thought looked fun. We stayed with this game because it was something that was incredibly fun. It's a mental puzzle. It's, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of resources to manage. The ability to do stuff during your opponent's turn to mess with them. It's the greatest game by... A not insignificant margin. And that's what makes it so special. That's what makes it so much fun when you play Commander. The idea that you can just do a bunch of stuff. Whether you're strapping, you know, four equipments onto your, your Rafik or you're putting, you know, seven auras onto your Uriel the Mist Stalker and shoving it at somebody's face and telling them to deal with it. Or you're, you know, making five or six tokens with your young Pyromancer by chaining cantrips together and drawing some extra cards off your Nibmizzet. Or casting, uh, casting 15 spells in a, casting 15 spells, a Mind's Desire, and then eventually a Tendrils of Agony to burn the table out. Or, you know, putting... Well, what's a good example? You know, putting five or six creatures on the board and then Armageddon. Or casting Avacyn Angel of Hope and then casting Armageddon so everybody else loses their lands but you don't. You're not doing that in any other... There's no other format where you get to do that that is, like, universally recognized. There's a reason Commander is the most popular format. Standard is the most popular tournament format. Modern is the most popular eternal format. 
Commander's the most popular format, period. Because there's nothing else like it. There's no other way to play Magic that feels like Commander. The whole point of the existence of the format is to sit around a table for a couple of hours and have a good time. That's it. Winning becomes secondary at some point to the experience, to the stories. To being able to tell everybody about that one time that like everybody was doing stuff, but the game took three hours to finish. Those are the memories. Those are the those are the, the nights you keep with you playing Magic. Those are the nights that you get to breathe from the competitive grind. It's a wonderful reliever of mental stress when you've been doing the competitive grind to just sit down and play a nonsense commander deck for three hours. Sit down with some friends. You know, I like to do commander nights. I'll, I'll cook dinner. Everybody can chip in to help cover my costs, but well, I'll cook dinner. You know, I'll make burgers, or I'll I'll barbecue a shoulder, or I'll uh, you know make a big pot of chili and make some grilled cheese, something like that. Crack open a cold one with the boys, or whoever else wants to come. If you want to drink, fine, but you're not leaving for three hours, so. Might as well play Commander while you're here, right? <laughs> and just kind of, it's, it's the most, it's the best way to escape the stresses of the real world by playing Magic is to do so with Commander. At the end of the day, that's what it is for me. So, if you want to tell me how wrong I am about all this, if I missed anything, and I know I did, I'm sure I have, If you want to tell me how wrong I am, you want to tell me how right I am, I'd be surprised, but you can. On Twitter, I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. On uh, YouTube, the channel is Homeward Path Gaming. Uh, these episodes are also going to start being put up on the Constructed Criticism YouTube channel, for what it's worth. That's news for everybody. Just to kind of it, it helps the network, and then it also eventually comes back around and helps me, potentially. Speaking of coming, you know, helping the network and then coming back around and helping me eventually, don't forget to check out our sponsor, PureMTGO.com. They're fantastic. They are the reason, they are part of the reason I haven't lost my mind during quarantine, because they've given me a project. For those of you who want an update on the project, uh... With the last bit that I cashed out from Pure MTGO from the sponsor, I have now on Magic Online playsetted all the Shocklands, all the uh, like the Dragon Skull Summit cycle, the the Checklands, and all the temples. And then I think beyond that, I got uh, playset a Sea Dasher Octopus, and I was like out of credit. But we playsetted thirty lands. That's that's not bad. It's not a bad place to be when you're when you're trying to get stuff done. When your goal is to get to play Magic Online in a way that 
you know, you're still doing the budget magic thing, but you're doing it maybe in a way that's a little bit different than what every other piece of content you've ever seen for budget magic is. It's not everything. It's one heck of a good start. Wouldn't be possible without their help. They're helping keep the lights on and we obviously appreciate it. So while you're perusing the web, if you don't want to, you know, after you get done checking out the largest collection of content for magic that I've seen basically anywhere. And by the way, all of it's free, uh, head over to constructedcriticism.com, Check out the rest of the network. Do that. Let, let them, let us know you were there. It's good for us. It's good for, good for all of us. And then end of the day, you want to help me directly? You don't want to go, you don't want to go through the, the middle, the middle person channels. Patreon.com slash homerpathmtg. This show and every major piece of content I put out is always going to be free. But if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over there. Make a make a a donation. I will be sure to put it to good use. It's much appreciated, especially right now. This comes with the caveat, of course, that if you need it, don't send it to me. These are trying times we live in right now. There is no point in bankrupting yourself to try to help me out. If it's taking food off your table, I don't want it. So, with that out of the way, let's see if they'll come up, see if we have any. Uh, it's been a while, so I'm, I'm hoping we have a few. I'm hoping we have some MTG dad jokes this week. Come on. Come on. All right. What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Oh, we don't have any new ones. I'm sad. No new MTG dad jokes this week. Remember, I love to laugh. I hope you do too. It's one of the one of life's great releases when it comes to uh, trying to get through the struggle that we're all doing. Laughter is one of the best medicines. So if you can think of any hilarious magic-related pun, make sure to post it on either Twitter or in the Facebook group with the hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. I will find it. I will read it. I will reply to it. And then I'll read it on the show and reply to it again. Because these things are never just funny once. Come on. And since we don't have any MTG dad jokes, I thought I would catch everybody up since I've spent this whole episode talking about Commander. Should probably tell you what I'm doing with it, huh? Since it's one of my favorite ways to play Magic, and since I view myself in my personal Magic community as, I, as I'm closer to 50 than I am 20 here in a couple of weeks. Well, closer to 50 than I am 15 here in a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm, my math is awful, people. I'll be 31 in a couple of weeks. Uh, but, you know, with the, with the children getting older, with the local game store, I'm kind of acting as an ambassador for the game for the local game store. One of the things I wanted to do was utilize the format that everybody wants to play the most as a means to teach competitive concepts. 
which is to say to teach the concepts of like virtual card advantage, accumulated card advantage, uh, utilizing the graveyard as a resource, uh, the value of killing your opponent before they can do anything about it, how to, how to balance payoffs, that kind of stuff. So the end result was a project where I wanted to have every color pair represented in a deck. Not every possible combination of colors, which is to say I'm not doing any of the three color combinations. I'm only doing the guilds. And within them, I'm trying to accentuate as many different styles of play as possible. And where I'm at right now, uh, the very first one I built was my Niv-Mizzet Par and Spellslinger deck, which I dearly adore. Uh, is it? It does very is it related things. We play a bunch of instants and sorceries for fun and profit. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, the second one we built was Sarah's Miri Cat Tribal. Because Sarah told me she wanted a cat deck, and I figured it was a really good example of a way to demonstrate both tribal aggro in Commander and like white aggro decks outside of Commander. The idea that you want to just get a critical mass of bodies on the table, find a way to punch them through and kill people. Uh, the third one I built was Feather Heroic. Feather the Redeemed Heroic. It's Boros. It's how to cram value into a deck that can be aggressive. You know, you know what it means to be an aggressive deck that can play for value. Just put a little bit of mid-range in your life. Uh, the fourth one we got built was Lazav the Multifarious. That one I built strictly for commander purposes. Uh, it's a deck I can take into any playgroup because the goal of the Lazav deck in blue-black, I'm playing everybody else's stuff. It's the goal of control changing. It's the, the power level of playing other people's cards. And it's the kind of deck that is never too powerful for a group because I'm only as powerful as what you're doing. So if you feel like I'm doing something broken, it's your fault. And then the most recent one that I've gotten finished is Chainer Nightmare Adept as a value mid-range deck, which is to say it seeks to demonstrate how to accumulate value in as many different ways as possible. Get little bits of advantage on the board. Get little bits of advantage in drawing cards or card advantage while developing a board. Uh, generate some handful of really powerful single card effects. So on and so forth. And then the, the one I'm working on currently, I think I actually finished the 99, I just haven't gotten it sleeved yet, is Karlov of the Ghost Council, which is how to effectively utilize life gain. Instead of using it to gain a massive life total, it's using it to trigger card effects to turn life gain into tangible, real resources. And then from there, turn it into something, you know, not just utilizing the life gain triggers with cards like Dawn of Hope or Sun Droplet or uh, a Johnny's Pride Mate, Karlov itself, but also utilizing the life total bump as a way to get a lot of efficiency out of my cards. Cards like uh, Final Payment, 
it's terminate in Orzhov colors, but you have to take five damage. Well, that's fine if I've just gained like 10 life by playing creatures for the first few turns. Or if I have a Campbell on the table, you know, it creates pressure. It, it you know, it allows you to, to make the game about different things. The extra life buff is nice. You can use it in a lot of different ways, but it's essentially at the end of the day, it's a way to use life gain as a resource. And then that's all I have done so far. I have not decided for sure what I want to do with the remaining four color combinations. Gruul, Simic, Golgari, and Azorius. I'm thinking for Azorius I'm going to do flying. I'm going to do a skies deck and kind of use it to demonstrate the philosophy of tempo where a combination of interaction and evasion gives you the ability to to race effectively with uh, the original Asperia, the inscrutable and some number of telepathy effects as the commander where Asperia, every time she hits somebody, you can go get a creature with flying from your deck. That's really good. It's potentially very powerful. And then beyond that, I really don't know. I've not figured out what I want to do for Gruul, Simic, or uh, Golgari. Because, you know, Gruul, you typically want to do kind of a big, dumb mid-range deck, and it may end up being exactly where I end up, just playing Gruul Stompy and having fun with it. I normally kind of like to go against the grain. Those of you who know me know that. Like, I've already got a Spell Slinger. Technically, I already got two. So I don't really want another Spell Slinger deck. I don't really want to do Landfall and Gruul. I'd rather do Landfall and Simic. But that deck just feels like it builds itself, and that's not fun for me either. I'm not sure why. Probably just what I need to do at the end of the day. But, or maybe it's, you know, for Simic, maybe it's Karuga, the the companion from Ikoria that uh, when it enters a battlefield, you draw a card for each permanent with converted mana cost three or greater you control. That'd be an interesting line to take where traditionally you, you kind of buck traditions in order to gain access to a bigger payoff, but you're still at heart a ramp deck that draws a bunch of cards, which are the two things green and blue do the best. And then uh, for Golgari, like Marin is the only Golgari deck I've ever built. And Golgari decks tend to be really, really similar So there's the possibility that I just go wildly against the grain and do something like Skullbriar or Hapatra. But there's also the possibility that I just stick to what I know and play like Masaryk Aristocrats or uh, just rebuild Marin. Really don't know. But at the end of the day, at the end of it, I want to have 10 decks that each showcase something a little bit different. That's the, that's the end result I'm looking for. And then players can play those to get a feel for how those two colors work together. And then if they want to take that knowledge and then branch out into a third color, they're welcome to. They have an idea. But it's, it's meant to encourage creativity. It's meant to encourage excitement, enthusiasm. And at the end of the day, that's what I'm here for. Every person who picks up a deck is another person I get to play against. So... 
that's all I've got for this week, folks. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you uh, are not going to skewer me too heavily for taking a break from the competitive side to talk about, you know, doing doing things for fun and no profit whatsoever. But that's all I've got for this week. Been saving it up. As a, as a reward, you got an extra long episode this week, so I hope you enjoyed it. And with that, I'll sign off as I typically do. Now, reminding you that we're in trying times, and it's important to remember how to interact with one another when everybody's on edge, everybody's got stuff going on. You never know what someone else is going through. So, remember the words of wisdom from the 12th Doctor. Never be cruel, never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish and love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, be kind. We'll catch you next week. Thanks again.